Right. And what is fascinating that when they severed the the main part, the main bridge was severed, what emerged is two coherent consciousness. You watch left and right hand doing opposite actions. People literally choose opposite things at the same time. Conscious is not illusion. It's, it's probably the only thing we know for real exists. Everything else can be illusion. Right now, you and I can be in the matrix. All our memories could be false. All of this could be a dream. But what can't be illusion is our experience of it. That stands. And then we have a question, where does it emerge? Right. Yeah, I... And we can be enslaved because actually we become so easily predictable and scripted. The Infinite Perspective Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Infinite Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Hamad Mustafa. I'd like to start off today's episode with a quote from Socrates. Wisdom begins in wonder. There are a few people in life that compel us to wonder beyond the bounds of our own minds. And today, I'm fortunate enough to host one such person, Milita Bursak. Milita has a master's in applied psychology from Middlesex University in Dubai. She has a bachelor's in the same field from the University of Philosophy. She has various other credentials in the fields of management, fitness, and nutrition. Milita is the co-founder of Include Me, a school-based parent support group that advocates for meaningful inclusion and helps parents with children who have additional learning needs. Her extensive list of accomplishments can continue, but in the limited amount of time we have, I'll mention one more captivating quality about Milica, and that is her innate philosophical nature. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast. That's so kind of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So. <laughs> of course. Um, so I want to start off with a question that will... I'd like to bring back the quote that I mentioned from Socrates. So wisdom begins in wonder, right? I'd like to ask you, what causes you to wonder? It's a hard one. I, I think I always had it. I don't think I, dis I had to discipline myself for this. I was always curious as a child. The knowledge just uh, was satisfactory on its own. I kind of the moment I started learning to read I, it was just an endless opportunity and I think I had um, so two really important things happened first I learned to read that kind of introduced me to the vastness of right. knowledge and then second was uh, richly internet when that came that was unbelievable. It was like a candy land for my brain because obviously at that point you just realized the power of knowledge that you access and uh, democratization of knowledge um, and then just how everything can be integrated and you can spend Absolutely. time. So I, I think the curiosity for me was maybe innate. I was I was lucky to have it. I can't explain it. I find, I think I when we, when we spoke briefly, before, I told you that I find the world absolutely amazing. I mean, yeah. I see colors everywhere. I I see stories to be told and explored. And I, I think wherever I look, I see question mark that I would like to pursue and understand deeper. So, right. well, this is truly magical. There's, there's endless opportunity to explore. And, and again, the knowledge also, I realize, gives me a chance to uh, positively impact other people, gave me a sense of purpose. Because the more I knew, the more I could be a resource to others, control my life and be less of a burden to others, but as well offer them more help right. and so be part of uh, their problem solving process. And in that, I kind of find a huge satisfaction as well that I could create a positive impact to everything that I learned and I could share. So I was not trying to be a vault. I was trying to be someone who access the knowledge and hopefully be able to help others whenever I can. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, appreciating and identifying the beauty in, in the world from any given subjective lens really propels our curious side of the mind and 
compels us to answer the questions that we have about it. So that's beautiful. So the first question that I would like to ask is, of course, given your background in psychology. Um, so on the podcast, I really like discussing artificial intelligence. And the way that we're progressing right now is currently we're at artificial narrow intelligence. So artificial intelligence that can solve basic tasks. It's not, you know, how we see in pop culture and movies doesn't have consciousness. But the question, how I would like to phrase it would be, what is consciousness really? And of course, there may, this is probably the biggest question in the history of humanity. But just if you were to cut it down for us, what would be consciousness? Um, it's, it's actually a fascinating question. Most people don't spend much time thinking about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I feel like the human race has yeah. procrastinated with this question. And there's a reason for that, right? I mean, if, if right now we do not have any a theory of consciousness that we agree on, the landscape is vast, we're pursuing multiple avenues, no. we find consciousness elusive, mystical, and magical. We, we just can't really grasp the... F and if you look at the landscape right now, so we do not have a kind of definition of what consciousness is. Yeah. We do not have agreed way to actually explore it. Identify what it is, absolutely. So scientifically, we do not have tools either. Um, so we use these uh, thought experiments and thought kind of hypothetical thinking here that... Uh, try somehow grasp what are we talking about, right? So this quali uh, subjective quality, and it's really experience of all. And the fact that you, when you, when I ask you what's a consciousness, and most people say, but it's a state of me. And that is true. Mm -hmm. And so the way we onboard people on what is consciousness yeah. was one of those, what it is like to be a bat, right? That, that was the first in 1970 something. It was the first little, you know, article that came yeah. through, through and uh, people use it just to understand what are we talking about. So because to, to know what is consciousness, you have to know what is not consciousness. Where yeah. does it stop, right? So we ask ourselves, what is it like to be a bet or what is it like to be anything? And then if you can imagine, if you can put yourself into position of True. that and have some sense that there is something to be like, there is some subjective experience, that must be consciousness. That consciousness is present. Now, right. if you play that long enough and say, what it is like to be this microphone? And then you realize you just can't imagine any subjective state or incoherent answers there, then you just obliterate the whole sense of any experience. You realize that there must be no consciousness there, right? So, the, it's, so right now, we apart from that, that we agree that there is consciousness, not illusion. It's it's probably the only thing we know for real exists. Everything else can be illusion. So, right now, you and I can be in the matrix. All our memories could be false. All of this could be a dream. But what can't be illusion is our experience of it. That stands. And then we have a question, of course, then that follows, right? What it is, and then how do you explain it? Where does it emerge? Right. And I think that's where you and I, you kind of pull out that wonderful zombie experiment. Yeah. So. You, we can talk about it, but immediately you're jumping into it. And then why is a zombie experiment was used, right? Yeah. And well, can you define that us for, for people that don't know? The can zombie you just experiment? explain, yeah. Yes, yes. We, we definitely need to explain what that is. So the zombie experiment was initially used so you can conceive really the what is consciousness. But what right now I like to, when I think about it, is... You use the zombie experiment to really discriminate supposedly hard question and the easy question. And let's so let's you and I go into a zombie factory, right? Okay. And then so we're gonna see why this is interesting, right? Right. So we're gonna play a, really a thought experiment here. Okay. So I'm building you, okay? okay, and we go to the zombie factory where I actually have all access to everything that is you. 
All right. Every part of you. And I will start from the smallest particles and I will build you up one bit by another, fully replicating you, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because I will have your memories too. I will not have just physiology. In that physiology is your your memories okay. and your experiences and your sensory states. At which point are you conscious? At which point does the consciousness comes in? Now, initially, experiment was used to talk about unconscious zombie. But let's say I'm really replicating. And the hard question is this, right? At which point really consciousness comes in? So the easy question is that I can explain how your eyes, well, sort of. I can explain how your eyes work. I can explain somewhat how the brain, electricity, yeah. and chemicals. And I can explain the movement, the voluntary movement of muscles. And we can look at the organ systems and all of this. But at which point does the subjective experience of comes in? At which point of building? Because remember, you have to understand that you, if you go down and we use the, what it is like to be a bat, and we use the same. Right. And I started building you from the smallest particles. Is there something like to be an atom in your body? Is there something like to be an organ system in your body? Is there, at which point of building did a consciousness emerge? So Chomsky is one of the thinkers that actually coined this hard and easy problem of consciousness. Hard meaning we just can't see the point of emergence. Why does the even consciousness come in? Now, what is also interesting is that if you look at your brain, right now as you and I are sitting here, there's right. so much of your function that is completely beyond any conscious experience, subjective experience, which is how your heart beats and your breathing and your organs and liver and all of these things. Mind you, your understanding of language right now, the way you just process what I'm saying and follow and the fact that you're going to answer something that really makes sense and the fact that I follow grammar to the point that I hope I'm going following, that's just completely beyond your reach of any experience. That's in a darkness what is there is actually just sense of this. And in that consciousness emerges this amazing emotional life. It's just love and pain and messiness and <clears throat> really the, the whole thing that we call human. The magic of human actually is in consciousness. And now we ask ourselves, how do we explore something which we don't even know where does it emerge? And there are a few things I can say where the options, where does it emerge? Right. So, we can say that there was a, some threshold that we had to reach in a buildup, and then when it reached, it kind of just came through, right? And right. then it could be there is just a, one important part that when you add it, it, suddenly it's like a switch and it's there. Or it was always there. It's just that when we build you up, it's like an antenna and you're palpating the whole consciousness. It's always have been there and you're like just absorbing it and becoming a, a part of a wider ecosystem that has the ever-living consciousness. I mean, Correct. it could be that really, if you yeah. think about what consciousness is, it's a mirror, right? Of everything just reflects in it. And But how does it emerge from all of this is uh, still not, uh, not answered. So you and I will definitely not be arrogant to claim that we're going to answer this, <sighs> but we can entice the curiosity, curiosity and, questions. and show the landscape that is quite noisy still. Yeah. I'll I want to add on to this. So um, basically, you uh, mentioned that the one of the explanations is that this could be an emergent property of some of the processes that we still have not identified. And once it reaches a certain threshold, then it crosses and it you know you you see consciousness come out of it. The thing is, however, what is the brain? It's basically neurons acting in conjunction and forming. Oh intelligence, correct? If you look at it, in theory, transistors, the elements that make a computer work, they're on and off switches. They basically do the same job as uh, neurons, you could argue, to a certain degree. In theory, if you were to replicate a brain with its neural processes exactly on with 
transistors. If we take a material perspective in a philosophical way in, in, in explaining consciousness, that, that would imply that you can still achieve consciousness through physical elements like transistors or tools or computation or whatever computational processes that you would like to use. With our current technology, like we have ChatGPT, it appears to be rational. What I would like to propose to take this conversation further, that would be my next question, ChatGPT can exhibit signs of rationality. But with humans, I think consciousness is more of an emotional process rather than a rational one. And we cannot replicate emotion. And we've never been able to in any computational digital program. Do you think that is where we may, that is where we could potentially find the answers? To the conscious? Yes. What is consciousness? There's a lot to unpack there. It's, it's, um, you have to understand that um, you will never really understand what it is like to be anything apart from really being a human. Yeah. So uh, embedding any of this is just, I can't even predict what the consciousness would be in, in something that is just uh, G, uh, the, any of the artificial oh, intelligence build up. But, um, and the, why re consciousness is an important question is because it pulls in a lot of ethical questions, obviously, right? Because whatever we give consciousness to, we kind of embed morality to it, yeah. right and wrong. True. If something is alive, should we actually give them uh, rights? And how do we actually, can we use them, yeah. right? What is interesting about ChatGPT, and I remember doing it myself, and I was laughing, it was, please, I was embedding words that are very much being grateful that this is going to be done for me. Okay. So I was doing, please, can you? And I realized not only me, I was catching other people doing it. Me too. And that is just surprisingly, and why is that? And this is actually what you just know. It was giving answers that were just very clearly being seen by us humans done only. We have never seen, we were surprised that what we thought was the last frontier, language. And I remember saying a few years back, the moment we crack the language, we are moving a very fast artificial intelligence. True. Really, really fast. Because we thought language is deeply only reserved for us. Remember, no other, and this is where I, I, for me, when I think about consciousness, language is a very important part of understanding what consciousness is. Now, and I'm just going to add a little bit of my thinking. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm just not trying to be in any way here smarter than anyone else. I'm just a plain observer of discussions that are happening right now in the field. If you look at the children, right, or babies, mm -hmm. clearly you don't have memories first few years. Oh, yeah. No, we don't. Now, do you have consciousness? Of course you do. You have yeah. some subjective, but there is no consciousness as you recognize it. They're, uh, very, they're programmed, right? The child almost follows if any nationality, anywhere in this world, historically, any time in the history, it's almost the same developmental stages. They do not talk usually before they walk. It's amazing. It's a new nervous system. It's just following almost very scripted way. You do not have memories. You're getting around two, between two and three is a massive pruning and kind of rejecting a lot of stuff that yeah. has not been useful. So where is the consciousness emerging there? Because at one point, you know, is, uh, I don't know if you know, there are experiments with the children, very young babies, obviously. When you put something on their head, they do not have integrity of self. They will not see as a that's not part of me. Also, children don't initially say I, they say their name. They will say, Anna is doing this, not I am doing this. So if you look at language development in children and all of this, it is very interesting how they develop. And then, so can we look at some way to explore consciousness? Wow. What is going on there? Is the language really very important part of subjective experience of self? Because if we all stayed babies, let's say we never crossed two years. We have this very much decision-making that is, does not feel in our control, right? Which we give a lot to animal kingdom. Now, the why I'm coming back is really, 
But the moment you start giving to the artificial intelligence language, what he says, did you mean to ask this? Did you think? And he corrects me. Think about it. GPT can actually correct me. It has a, some kind of conversation. He's trying to help. Now, that is where we are just can't resist but keep projecting ourselves. The moment you start imitating humans and using human-like language, it's hard to resist to some projection that you actually meant mention. And this is where blur line comes in, obviously. Where are we going? I think for me, when initial criticism on GPT came in, is that we are discussing like, this is it. This is a baby step. This, we are observing baby steps. We are, and they're moving very fast. This baby is growing very fast. Yeah. I think we opened the flood door and genie's out of the bottle, really. We will not stop with the progress where we're going. So the question is, yet what is not able? And I think that's far more interesting question. And that's where we do our thought kind of experiments here and simulate very, I think we have to be very clever and simulate uh some of the probabilities that we have never seen before. Absolutely. And I definitely don't think we should be naive. Now, will we find the question of consciousness, the theory of consciousness is very important because of artificial intelligence is going more toward than you know that yourself, is a artificial super intelligence, self-prompting. And that is where language comes in very strongly. I mean, it's going to organize these cells, literally, it's going to recruit what is needed, it's going to organize structure and actually have a goal orientation. Now, if you remember what intelligence is, is ability to accomplish complex goals, right? And is, is it is a spectrum, so you can see everyone has a, some problem solving or yeah. accomplishment of goal, but as you move toward more and more complex, you're moving toward the super intelligence where complex systems we can't even process we just can't and i think uh, what is for you for sure interesting is how we gonna apply ethical questions at one point and then that movie blade runner that i keep saying that you should watch from 1982 i promise i will <laughs> and i i'm just gonna play it out for you mm -hmm. uh, so stop me if, you know don't i won't go too far with the story so yeah. blade runner in 1982 and uh, observe the language please so there are replicas that are came to earth so they kidnapped some airspace airplane sorry uh, spaceship and okay. they killed 23 people and they're right. looking for freedom blah blah and they came and they are engineered to resemble the human more than the human that's the policy of the company that builds them right and what is interesting they came to earth why because they realized they're coming close to the expiring date they are aware of that and mortality they came to Earth to find the designer of them, their creator, so they can extend their life. Now, in the meantime, they kind of recruit a retired detective or whatever, a Blade Runner who has to retire them. Watch the language, because we would never say killing someone is retiring. Yeah. When you give someone a human characteristic, you say you're killing them. Killing but them. when it's a machine, for you to feel less for them, you will use words terminate retire, you will use it, right? It, By yeah. default, you feel no compassion. I eliminate a lot of, a lot of conundrums. Should I do this? Yeah. Is it wrong? Is it right? The morality becomes pretty clear and almost caricatured. Yes, no, there's nuance, it's lost. It's kind of easy decision there. And so in the movie, he starts hunting them down and he has to read, obviously, more and more about their profile. And so he has a test to find out the replica. It's actually an emotional test. And he asked them a very personal questions. And it's interesting because he judges emotional reaction to this, to find the replica, right? right. So how, these are all false memories embedded into these replicas. Okay. Really, they have sense that have passed and the childhood and fears and... They remember mommy helping them when they fell down and 
Funny enough, Rachel is one of the characters and she's experimental. She's a next level of replicas. Right. She doesn't know she's a replica. She wow. truly believes she's a human. Unconscious. So she's tested. It takes a long, long time to test. And she realized finally, she, she realized, oh, wow. Decker goes, when she leaves, she says, well, she's replica, but she doesn't know. And it took me a long time. That's why it took me a long time to test her. She had no idea. The point is that they exhibit something that is amazing. Throughout the movie, you realize they have exhibit mercy, help, sexual attractiveness to other replicants. They interact. Yeah. They're able to admire beauty of life, preserve life. Where's the line? Where's, where, where is the line? Where is the line? And one of the legendary scenes, please watch it, is the, the end, is where the one that has been hunted is hunting. And at any point he can kill the, the Decker, right? The Blade Runner, and he preserves him in the last minute. And he pulls him out from certain death, saves him, right? After playing and toying with him and wanted someone to witness his death. He literally wanted, he knew he's dying and he wanted a Decker, a human, to witness his death. He had appreciation for life. Wow. That's subjective. It's not subjective experience. Although he's a machine and he has expiring date and he was a slave. And right. he said, you feel the fear? That's how it feels to be a slave. So the question for us with an artificial intelligence, coming back to what you're truly interested, is when you create something that is better than us, and we are now a monkeys, yeah, and I, we can be enslaved because actually we become so easily predictable and scripted. And truly, yeah. Which you told me, if I teach a machine a million photos of the cat, that machine will discriminate cat far better than me. Yeah, exactly. And, <clears throat> you know, I've had another thought experiment that I've been thinking about in regards to artificial intelligence. So what I was thinking was, what if a machine was trained on data, on data from your digital life? So your chats, how you talk to people, True. what they say in response what you search online, what kind of videos you watch. If all of that data, so let's say someone lives up to the age of 95, let's say. So from day one to the age of 95, they've trained all of that data into an artificial intelligence. On the surface, it would be indistinguishable from that very person. Um, the accuracy rate of actually distinguish of be, someone being able to distinguish whether that person you can't so then again that begs the question of like where the line is i mean if we think of machines that have a certain level of subjective experience as lesser than us then what if some entity has a higher level of subjective experience than us i think it's interesting point? i think we're losing something really important um I can't imagine machine going against itself and self-interest. I think it's going to be so rational. And when you look at humans, I mean, we are just, it's so messy. Yeah. We just, we do completely things that don't benefit us. Like we will walk ourselves straight into something that long-term, we know, I mean, we know this is it. I'm just seriously, we, we break up with people we love. We, waste our money, we bet, we, mm -hmm. it's just, it's a, it's a litany of madness if you look at it. Yeah. And if you look at the machine, it has a goal, it's going to always try to be the most efficient the shortcut, yeah. it's going to use the processing speed. But the, what really makes us so interesting is that we will, we will actually decide not to go the shortest way to the destination because we love to see the trees on the side yeah. and there is uh, someone we broke up and we just want to pass that kind of, <laughs> yeah. and the fact that we can, and that's a testimony to a poetry and the storytelling. And if you think about what we remember the most 
is what makes us human. It's a storytelling. We're suckers for storytelling, not facts. This is why people say, oh, this is such a boring read. When I tell you it's a boring read, is because you can't connect. And what you're not connecting is, is factual, it's dry, and we, we recognize intuitively. Now, what is also phenomenal about humans is we have intuition, right? And that's something that I don't have to... So machines will try, uh, will probably need still for a long time explicit, to be explicitly said. And there is that famous um, story, I think it's, uh, God, is it 13th century? Or maybe or it must be earlier, probably. I'm mixing that up. This is really aged, well story about the king who asked the genie, the, whatever I touch turn it into gold. Oh, Midas. Yeah. Midas. And that's a brilliant story. Now, why is that? Because think about it. In You know, you and I, we understand what he wanted, right? I mean, you understand why he made the mistake. He also, that's why he said it. He, I mean, of course, you should understand what I asked, right? Yeah. I want to be rich. Ultimately, I, I asked you to make exactly. me rich. I didn't literally ask you everything that I touched. But actually, it's exactly precision of language. is very important here. Mm-hmm. So if he said, turn to gold, only s- objects that are here on the table. Mm-hmm. And I want, and every time I put this, so he would actually be so precise. But now he, could touch, he couldn't touch his daughter and he couldn't touch the food. He starved himself to death. And we see this playing out. Every genie that comes out and give you wishes, the last one is usually, can you erase the first two? Because there's no intuition. It's taken literally. It's going to take a long time for a lot of these devices and artificial intelligence to actually not, do not require this explicit. We have this, what is so humanly messy and we share without speaking. And that I think is interesting part about consciousness because you would very well understood to turn everything into gold, right? And look at the marketing, right? Look at, Look at the way we market things. Look at the way we get kidnapped by social media. Look at the way we move collectively. Um, It's interesting. So when I look at social media, it's phenomenal. So you think you are buying best things that are marketed, they're never literal. They're almost subliminal in a way. So when someone says, oh, well, I'm selling, selling a drill, right? Okay. Am I selling you a drill? Uh, no. I'm selling you, I'll tell you what I'm selling you. I'm not even selling you a hole in the wall. I'm selling you image of that shelf, of you doing it on your own, of being, I'm selling you the whole vision of that cupboard you're going to build and then frame you're going to put, yeah. and the house you're going to mm. make. I'm not selling you a drill. That is what human is. And that's going to take a long time to actually get that nuance going where we intuitively share. And that's probably for me a challenge wherever we go. Now, reasoning and uh, I think for me very near future is a scripted tasks. I think that you eliminate emotions and they're problem solving. I think uh, very much uh, things like um, driving, I think is going to first to go, I think something that we almost have all the steps uh, very well arranged. Redundant tasks, essentially. Uh, I think redundant, but predictable, very predictable and narrow. Uh, I think we're going to be able to automatize and give. But that, remember, whenever you automize something like that, you're giving an artificial super intelligence now an access to a tool that doesn't need to belong to human. I'm now automatizing it. So now it's actually accessible Correct. to itself, right? This is where self-organization comes in. I am surrendering into the something that is artificial, entirely narrow, to something that has access to the narrow so it can become global. Now, one thing is amazing for humans, and I think this is where you, you were talking about, will we create something that is human-like? And I never understood why would I create something human-like because it's so inefficient, inefficient, to be honest. We are slow in a way, the process, a lot of things. So the way, uh, the way machine processes is unbelievably fast. I don't think we will ever want to copy a human with 
because we see limitations, we want to overcome the limitations. But you can see how quickly we keep moving the goalpost left and the landscape becomes... Yeah, absolutely. Quite a lot of shades of gray are being now shown in the discussion. um, I guess the question of whether or not something should be human-like or not based on the assumption that humans are inefficient rests on what our goal is. So is our goal to get a machine that is the most efficient? Well, we can make things that are more efficient than humans. Even factory robots are more efficient than humans. But if this, we might get lost in this. So try to stay with me. If life was an equation, all right, let's say the output of that equation would be to live, to maximize the time human, the human race can survive. All right. If we relied solely on rationality, we wouldn't have art, perhaps, because art requires emotion. It requires a subjective understanding of what is aesthetic and beautiful. And that requires... Dali may disagree with you. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to come to that too. That's a very interesting debate. But to recognize that something is beautiful or that something has a deeper meaning... You know, uh, this is really funny. There's a trend within Gen Zs. So we say, what color is mathematics? It doesn't make sense, I know. But if you think about it a little bit, you might say mathematics, if it was a color, would be red. Okay, I would probably say red. That's a very interesting way where your brain is associating an abstract concept with something that's physical, like a color, right? And that's, I don't know how psychologists would explain this, but it's a very interesting side effect of like uh, rationality and And, emotion. And that's where language comes in. Yeah, correct. So think about it, what you associate with red. Yeah. um, Yeah, so my associate, like I would, I guess when I'm growing up. I mean, the color has a meaning. It's the color in itself as a color. What is color? I mean, if you put into physics and really loses all the qualities that you are talking about using color here, right? Yeah. You are not associated with wavelengths. wavelengths no, exactly. no, no, no. You are associated with what you before said, qualia, right? Emotion. Which is experience of red. Now, red, obviously, you can have conventional, we have a conventional agreement around red. Red is used for, as a strong color of stop, alert, right? Love. It's in Chinese is luck. And then why is it not brown? And look how my tone of voice goes at brown. Exactly. Brown. It's actually even more so. I'm actually adding tone to this now. So I'm having uh, something that is a perception. But what, are you, what kind of mind map you have built around the red color is what you're not attracting. You want to merge with the map. Because math has a mind map. If I ask, and mind map here is association. So if I ask you what math is, you will have a, it's like a beehive of words. And now if I look at the red, you're going to see that they have association, association. similarities. Exactly. Now this is brilliant, right? Again, we're going back to language. It's interesting. They did this in um, uh, different cult, uh, different languages. If you actually explore them, have a female and male noun. Yeah, exactly. And English doesn't have right. And English has a very specific right. So my language has it. I'm guessing. Yes, it does. For example, a son can be in some cultures and some languages female and male, and you will see where the son is completely differently used. If it becomes masculine and becomes feminine, it's actually even used to associate. It is phenomenal how language plays a role. So what you exhibited here is experience and then just mind maps around. And yeah, subjective experience associating with math and if it's in close proximity with any given color. I can can call into your mind any person and you're going to have a multiple obviously experience on the, if it's mm. almost like a, so if you think about someone that is, you really hate, I mean, you will see, you will see certain colors. Absolutely. You will see the, the it's like they're coming Objects, all together, they're yeah. coming all together, right? You remove almost a life. 
from that, uh, you kind of bring certain darkness to it. It's funny enough. I mean, if you look at even fairy tales and all this, this is black, black and white. And, yeah. But that is... Uh, cultural archetypes that we all carry through. It's a legacy and you're right that can the, can whatever we create tap into that, which is ultimately rational, truly. Why would, why would mud be yeah. red or, and not green? Yeah. I mean, the machine would justify any color. Any mm. color is good enough mm. because color is some wavelengths and there is no real difference between green and red and it can be anything but why did you choose red and you can actually convince me now by reasoning what is fascinating is you can reason why red is better than brown this is fascinating you're yeah. gonna pull some story now and <laughs> can i absolutely yeah. what what color do you think math is <laughs> uh definitely some sort of it's funny i never thought about it i would go black but I don't know why. Honestly. You see, that's the difference between the environment I think influencing. Depth, it's just the depth. Probably yeah, black true. is just so overwhelmingly, you know, yeah. the strong color. So probably. So um, there's unknowns as well. Maybe because I'm so bad at math. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe there are so many unknowns, and in darkness I will get lost. So there you go. <laughs> that's very interesting. So I was mentioning if if life was an equation, right? Or let's call it the equation of a mind. Who, which whose goal is to ensure the survival of a species. Now, there's different variables in this equation. There's rationality and then there's emotion, right? Both of these combined, in my opinion, form consciousness. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. If you remove the element of emotion or emotion that gives birth to irrationality, only relying on rationality might not ensure survival. Why? We've had this conversation before the podcast started. Sometimes irrationality, feelings of attachment with a certain idea, with a belief, with a country, with a person, actually pushes people, gives them a goal, even though it's an abstract concept. Like in reality, attachment doesn't exist. It's just something that your mind finds valuable. Now, going lengths which normally people would not be able to conceive of to protect that thing or to fight for it, like we just described, is a consequence of irrationality. But that, again, is an integral part of well, human nature. Um, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, to be honest. Uh, if, if history is to teach us anything, I mean, we started war over women, to be honest. It makes no sense. Uh, plenty of wars were purely ego driven and just uh, yeah. and if you if we are anything to learn from history most peaceful civilizations uh, are gone long gone and that's because the greed drove us and that's because in the design survival if it's the first thing that drives us the one that has resources and you have more power over them you're gonna take their resources to a kind of continue your own species and you own and the history keeps yeah. showing us this over and over. Now you have to understand that we all slave of our own design. And I think the fact that we are in a that this is a good design is a very deceiving thing. I think there's a beautiful thing about us and we are this is something to ponder about. And it's wonderful that you and I can as we speak and we are literally enslaved by the design itself. We observe the, that I'm enslaved. Yeah. That's a fascinating. But I'll entertain you further, actually. And I think this is interesting. Have you ever heard of a split brain uh, experiment? Split brain. Experiment. It's fas <laughs> fascinating. Actually, it's been done in the 60s and run for a long, I think under 10 years, actually. Go on YouTube, it's a split brain experiment. Okay. I actually encourage everyone. It's quite entertaining. Um, so they, they split, they divided hemispheres, right? The left and right, your left, uh, majority has a predominance is, is using your verbal and processing your verbal information. And the right is actually more living on the nonverbal dimension. Right. 
And you know that it's opposite, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so opposite. your left is actually left visual field goes into right, and your right visual field goes into left. Right. And we can actually we have a device that can actually expose certain to the left and the right. So kind of stimulate just one hemisphere. A device that can what? One device that can stimulate one hemisphere. Right? Okay. That can actually just show a word. Right. Now, what is fascinating that when they severed the connection, or not fully, obviously, sorry, not fully, obviously, there's, there are small parts, but the, the, the main part, the main bridge was severed. What emerged is two coherent consciousness, fully unique. Wow, in the, in the two hemispheres. So you have a person that if you tap into a left, it will be completely telling a story. I mean, it's wow. going to make up a story why it did something. It's going to just make a story. It's, it's your PR. And they were functional? Yeah, absolutely. Now, what is amazing, let me just explain what is even further amazing. This is only for a few months. And then the, these two hemispheres are definitely trying to regain one unique consciousness back. But until then, you watch left and right hand doing opposite actions. People literally choose opposite things at the same time. One explains it amazingly. What is interesting is the right hemisphere. Because left, you have access because of language. But when we realize that as we tap into right hemisphere, that there is no language, and we ask to draw, or we ask to present visually, it's there. The memory is there of what we show it. Which means, does the part of you have something that there is subjective experience, but you're not even aware of that part? It's almost like it's on the stage, but the light is not on it. Wow. So there's a, so that's, an additional facet. facet of subjective experience within the subjective experience that you have. Yes. Wow. Meaning there is something it's there and it's processing deeply human, but and it's exposed and is doing something with it and he has memory of it and he can show it. Wow. But it's not there until we ask differently to access it. That but is remember, insane. you and I only share language. I can't read your mind. So I think it's fascinating. There's another experiment. I think we have to move from consciousness because I'm going to use <laughs> the whole hour. I'm going to give you another experiment. Um, and this is a purely thought experiment of a person in the room, and they ask her to study, let's say, about anything. Give me anything. Let's say about the, um, uh, a rose, right? Okay. okay. They ask her to read anything under the sun about the rose. Okay. And she has never seen a rose. She lives in a pretty plant, zero is a sterile room. She only has access to really knowledge about it. Um, so moment she says, I have learned everything, everything about it. They say, okay, you're ready to go out. And she sees a rose. Did she acquire anything new about the rose by seeing the rose? That's the qualia. Right. Was there anything added in her experience beyond the knowledge? And that's where your artificial intelligence question comes in. I give them all of this. I see. Is the knowledge enough? And in a Goodwill Hunting movie, you're going to laugh again, I have plenty of movies. It's the same. The boy knows every fact about the chapel and, you know, the frescoes and the famous frescoes. And then he says to him, but the moment you go in... It's a different thing because it's a, you recognize it's almost there is something that is so subjectively strongly experienced that no matter how much you read about it, you don't have that, wow, suddenly it hits you. Yeah. So I'll ask you, what's a reference point? Because your brain is a purely reference point really using. Nothing can exist in understanding without reference point. What did you use as a reference point when you came in and saw that piece of art or for the first time saw something you read so much and then you went in and truly 
appreciated it? What was added? What is that qualia that was missing in reading, understanding, pulling it to the last bit of information? And that's where you asked me. If I add millions of pieces of information that accurately reflect on the reality that you're going to now engage with, but the moment you engage with it, did the consciousness emerge? Did you that quality that you so recognize about us, ability to admire, to love, to not let go, to stop and actually describe why you found that fascinating? While other people go, ugh. Now, most of the things what you will find is that you and I will have different fears, yeah. different interests, different passions. Will you actually ever be able to create diversity that is completely unruly and random among us in artificial intelligence? Absolutely. Think about it. I mean, why do I care about philosophy? It's not pragmatic. doesn't add to any of my everyday problems. I use endless amount of time reading about it. There are people who spend time reading and studying bugs while you and I go, hmm, whatever. Yeah. Amazing, right? They can commit their life to it. They, they feel a drive. They cannot resist. Almost they say to you, I'm called into it. I have no choice. It gives me such a pleasure to know all about it. And we believe messy things as well, yeah. like conspiracy theories. Think about how Still. messy and ruly we are. And uh, that's why I think we should um, leave consciousness for a little bit. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to ask you one last question okay. because we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so this is the Pygmalion effect, and it stems from the myth of the king of Cyprus who created a statue that he fell in love with, so much so that... A female statue. Yeah, a female statue. wanted to create the perfect woman. Yeah, and he fell in love with it so much that Aphrodite actually breathe life, yeah, into, life the, yes. into the statue. So uh, within that context, the Pygmalion effect essentially says that we have intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, right? So for example, if I am a child and I want to do something, and let's say I have a peer or a teacher, they have certain expectations of me. The Pygmalion effect states that their expectations are going to have a direct effect on my performance because they will tend to give me more opportunities. They will tend to perceive me in a certain way that will shape my own um, opinions about myself, which directly affect performance. So could you enlighten us a little bit more yes, about this? It's actually this? fascinating. Um, I'm not sure if we'll have time, so I'm going to kind of speed date with this topic a little bit. Uh, the Pygmalion, in fact, is actually saying that your your beliefs and expectations create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Now, we all talk about our mindset, you know, and our mindset, but we forget that we're always in a relationship with others and yeah. everything that happens to us in relationship to others. You're never in isolation. Your growth, your understanding, and your identity definitely is not born out of your choices outside of relationships. And this is why it's so interesting. So yeah. that means other people's mindsets influence the way you will behave. And what you rightfully showed, the most vulnerable group is the one that can't actually observe. It doesn't have enough experience to understand what is happening. So it takes on a face value what is being given, yeah. which is either labeled. Now, Pygmalion effect was done by Rosenthal in, in how oh God, I forgot the age, which is not of importance, but we did with mice, right? There was, so I'm just going to tell you how this started. So there was a two group of mice and there were, the cages were labeled smart and dumb. Yeah. And two groups of students were given. And after a while... Uh, the smart mice were behaving more intelligent than the dumb. Now, guess who can't read? Mice. Nice. Uh, who was able to read? Students. Students. Now, when you ask the students, is this a smart? And then you realize it was given to, they were wanting to, because they're smart, they expected from them. So they trained them more. Now, this was not observed by the students. That it was changing their own behavior that little label was changing their own input and their own support for the mice. Right. So they were 
longer training them. They were engaging longer. They were more interested to develop the predisposition they believe they have. But what's the point on the dumb one? Obviously, yeah, that's, and remember, that's a fixed mindset with that. You give identity. What is interesting about Pygmalion, we have done over 500 experiments with it yeah. in every sector. So school, which is where we really think has a, such a detrimental, detrimental effect, absolutely, to army, Military, to corporate. Yeah. And we kind of see it everywhere, yeah. right? And so it plays out. Now, why, why is Pygmalion effect so important, obviously, is because it becomes self-fulfilling. So think about it. Usually in life, I wouldn't give you labels. Like I wouldn't tell you what I think about you. Or I would. Now, if I don't, I will behave certain way. You won't know why I'm behaving, but I'm changing still course of your behavior because we're in some kind of relationships. Now, if I tell you you are not smart and I actually don't invest in you in any way, my behavior, I will only expect much from you. And by default, it is self-fulfilling prophecy is, yeah. because I won't give you support. I won't give you tasks that actually test that you are able. I will not give you opportunity to show me what you can. And by default, I will think that that's a proof of your inability. I won't even notice what I'm doing, that I'm actually trapping you in this, that I am trying to prove my own label that I'm yeah. given. But let's walk away. I think you can grasp the concept. Now, you want to unpack how to use Pygmalion in everyday. Correct. Because truly, you can use it for the benefit, right? So if you think about, so how do you use to really um, influence in a positive way others is that you turn everyone into learner. Now, the mistake is really, and this is where we fall, that you attach the same goal to everyone. And that's where people will be smarter and yeah. not so smart. But the point is that you attach a learning to everyone. Everyone can learn. Growth and mindset. if you see everyone as able to improve, then you will invest in everyone. You will not give up. And what has done in uh, Rosenthal, they went to school, right? After that mice, the director of school called them in and asked him, let's play this with kids. And you know what happened, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is brilliant, right? The late bloomers, the academic bloomers. They were like, and they did this over and over in different schools. And it every time it plays out with the children, the children who are labeled Low IQ and high IQ. They and I don't know if randomly. you know, CAT score. You know about CAT score? In British system, CAT score is used. Now, my child actually experienced this, and I can assure you I went to rip that paper publicly into in front of the principal of school. CAT score are determining the child future marks and success. Right. Now, and it, it claims it's super valid, right? It's been tested scientifically. But what it does allows children to compare it to each other right. because they asked the cat scores to be put as a label on her literally notebook. They gave her identity through her cat scores and she walked around and all kids could compare each other's cat score and they were very aware what is a high and what's a low and guess what happened? Why would you make effort when exactly. you are already told that tests that can't be wrong is telling you that you're clearly not that smart. So I pulled that sticker <laughs> off and went publicly to express right. how I played against, you know, I explained about Pygmalion effect that giving someone identity who can't, doesn't have a nuance to understand and trust our adults that we will do the right thing and we have a right reasoning. That's pretty much what children do. They surrender themselves to us because we are so big and smart and we understand the world and we show them the limits of the world. They can't explore themselves. The playpen is drawn by us and they trust us. They take on a face value. And only later at this age, you can reflect and how poorly some of this feedback was given to you. But guess what? You acted on that feedback. You made choices. It's actually very rela relatable. That's why I asked this question. It's very painful. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I make sure that I, I'm advocate definitely for children because they do not have voice, but also they, even if they had the voice, meaning they were given uh, somewhere to speak, they just wouldn't have ability to understand the complexity of right now what they're under. And um, 
labeling children and giving them identity instead of understanding, you know, that they're all learning and no one can tell you what you can achieve. That's so arrogant. How can anyone put a limit to you? I mean, to any of you, you we, we've witnessed so many surprises. Absolutely. And not giving up on someone surprises us even more because the best of us were created through support. And everyone who right now is, we think, is probably achieving the more you ask them. And Bill Gates actually remembers the teacher and that guy. There's always a moment of impact. They all claim it was came through human and every documentary that we watch about anyone that we find now interesting will tell you there's a moment of impact through someone believing, not giving up, provo- provoking Absolutely. in them something that they couldn't see, but they saw, they wanted to bring out, they wanted to nurture. And that sense that someone believes in you, he sees agency, he actually stops their life for you and care is invigorating. It's, it gives you completely different strength. And I think if you look at in, um, in management, so I managed a small team and I was very clear to say, the respect I'm going to give you straight away is agency to decide. I chose you because I believe you are able and I will show you respect by allowing you as much as decision-making as possible. And I will be there. I'm your ever open resource. Wherever you're stuck, I come in. I give you just enough of information that you still go back and make that decision. Right. I always give you a, a position of ability. I never kidnap that agency from you. And that is a position of learning that I will never challenge you too big where you fail, but I will also challenge you where I'm going to be a support and you will never be in a position that I will fail and someone will watch but rather we will all be in the position of learning, moving forward, and just remembering that we are all in a position of a teacher and a student for the rest of our lives. Absolutely. That's beautiful insight. Um, Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we don't have time, but I wish we honestly did, but this was amazing. Thank you. Uh, Perhaps, honestly... One of the most intellectual discussions I've ever had. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I hope to see you on the podcast again. And we're definitely going to be doing this again if you you would be up for that. But yeah, I think we can wrap this up. Thank Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. 